Well, good morning, Orchard. Welcome. We're so glad you're here. Happy Father's Day, right? And keeping with tradition of Father's Day jokes and some things like that, I've, I've searched and got some more dad laws for you to keep it fun for us. Dad loves a good, dads love a good joke, right? Like when my kids say, I'm hungry. I am forced to respond, hi, hungry. I'm dad, right? I got some more dad laws for us here. A dad law is inherently something that dads must do. Like anytime a, anytime a cashier has trouble scanning something, the dad must say, I guess it's free then, huh? It's dad law. A dad has a, a designated spot in the living room. Any child found in that spot must relinquish that spot when the dad comes in by dad law. If a dad forgets his car keys and has to come back in the house, he has to declare when he gets them, couldn't go far without these now, could I? This is dad law. Now, dads, you are allowed a dad tax of any food your children have. It doesn't matter what it is or how precious or how much they complain. Dad law declares you get a dad tax. Also, when a dad gets a drill, any time a dad picks up a drill, he must give it a few, few revs just to check it. The same is true when a dad picks up some tongs for the grill. Just a few practice clicks, just to make sure we're all working right here and firing on all cylinders. And finally, any time a dad ties down something on his truck or a trailer, when he's done, he's got to pat it and say, that's not going anywhere. It's just dad law. You got to do it. And so today is Father's Day. And in fact, today, we're in the book of John, this whole series, but today... We are going back to John 4 because I saved something previously just for today for Father's Day for us here today. We're in John 4, and the reason is, is because it's about a dad. It's about a dad. A dad who's in desperate need. So, here we go. But oh, hold on. Just because it's Father's Day and I'm talking about a dad here, it doesn't mean this sermon is just for dads. It doesn't matter what you come here from. God has something for you today. So turn with me to John 4, verse 43. After two days, Jesus left for Galilee. Now he has just spent time in Samaria with the, the Samaritan woman at the well, and now he's traveling back to his own country. And then verse 44. Now Jesus himself had pointed out that a prophet has no honor in his own country. You see, he was honored in Samaria. They begged him to stay longer. They said, please stay and, and teach us more. But now he's back in his hometown. There's people who've doubted him. Like they know him. It's hard to say you're the Messiah when they know your mom. You know? It's hard to say, hey, I came down from God when they know where you went to school. So, so, so he's back in his home area and, and they're not respecting him. But then we see in verse 45 something interesting happens. It says this. So when he arrived in Galilee... The Galileans welcomed him. They had seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, for they had also been there. It's strange because Jesus just said a prophet has no honor in his hometown, yet here he gets back to his home country with Galileans, and they welcome him. They're excited to see him. But why are they excited to see him? Why are they excited? We learn from John 2 why they're, why, why they're excited to see him. It says this, Many people saw the signs, the miracles he was performing, and they believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. He knows what's in their hearts. He did not need any testimony about mankind, for he knew what was in each person. He knows why they're excited. He didn't entrust himself to them because he knows why they want to be near him. These people, they want to see miracles. They want to see the signs. He knew what was in their heart. They want to see the miracle more than the miracle 
worker. And this happens in our area. You know, we have a lot of people who go, out, go outside or go for a hike, and, and they worship and they adore the creation, missing the creator. It's appreciating. It's worshiping. It's pursuing anything in the work of God's hand over what's in God's heart. And that's what's happening here. Jesus goes back to his home country, and they flock to him with open arms, but not open hearts. They want to see miracles. They want to see miracles. They don't want to see a Messiah. They've come to see his parlor tricks. They're not here for personal transformation. The Samaritans, they had wanted to be transformed by his teaching. But here, they want to see him do something miraculous. And you know, honestly, church, we need to be careful of this. As followers of Jesus, we need to just kind of do a check-in on us. You know, miracles are awesome. Signs are amazing. Anytime God does something out of the box, it's just awesome to behold. But our Sunday morning gatherings and our Bible studies and our small groups, our personal prayers, we can't just be hunting after miracles. At the end of the day, the point of following Jesus is not to see cool things happen and miraculous things happen. It's to be more like Jesus. That's the point of the whole thing. So, so what we can do is take stock of our prayer life. If you have a prayer journal or if you just think back over the prayers you've been praying, has it been pleading for more of God's presence or pleading for God to perform something in your life? Are we praying for God do this for me? Or are we praying and asking, God, do this in me? God, do this to make me more happy, to make, me, to make life more easy? Or God, do this to make me more like you? Let's be careful that we are more like the Samaritans, asking, inviting God, to, to his presence to change us, and less like the Galileans who just want to be close to him to see something happen miraculous. It says this in 36. Once more he visited Cana in Galilee, where he had turned water into wine. He comes back to a familiar place. He's been here before. We've already been here in the book of John. This was the place where he did the first miracle at the wedding. Do you remember that? He changed water into wine. You remember last month, it was just last month that he had this, wed- he had this wedding, and the wine ran out. And what happens when wine runs out in that culture? It's a huge dishonor for the couple getting married and the, the master of the, of the wedding. And Jesus, in his first miracle in John, he turns water into wine. But remember what, what it means. He had these ceremonial religious basins where they would wash themselves to be religiously clean. He turns that water into wine. And if you've been going with us through the book of John and you remember every word I've said, of course you remember that wine is often the symbol of blood. And so what Jesus is doing there, the foreshadowing that someday the religious, the ceremonial washing to be clean will be done away with because blood, sacrificial blood is coming. And once and for all, we will be clean. He's provided them an amazing gift at this party, and he's back to the scene. Here he is. And, and they all show up, but somebody else shows up here. We don't know his name. We don't know a lot about him, but it says this. There was a certain royal official whose son lay sick in Capernaum. Now, again, we don't know his name, much about him, but what we do know is this. A certain royal official from Capernaum. Now, the word here actually means, it's a general term that he is royal, or that he, but he has clout. It usually combines civil and military authority. This guy probably had some, some uh, soldiers under his command, as well as a lot of authority. He's a royal official 
under the Roman tetrarch, Herod Antipas. He's come by the, to this appointment of this position either because of his blood, he's related, or he has giftings and he has been elevated to this position of a royal official. Now we don't know if he's a Hebrew or a Gentile. But either way, because of his work, because of what he does, because of how he has to operate, he's likely very Hellenized, which means he's probably fairly irreligious. He has a lot of Greek and Roman influence because that's primarily what he has to work with. He's more Greek and Roman in culture than he is Hebrew in culture. He's from Capernaum. And that city is just 16 miles away, just 16 miles, but he's going by foot, a couple days walk probably. And we see that his son, who lies sick, is back in Capernaum. He leaves him. We can assume that this official had been hearing about Jesus. Maybe he heard about the wedding feast in Cana. The rumors made it to Capernaum. Perhaps he heard about what happened in Jerusalem. But he heard that there's this man traveling around who, who might be able to help him. And so he leaves Capernaum leaves his son's bedside, and sets out to find this Jesus. Verse 47. When this burnt man heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee from Judea, he went to him and begged him to come and heal his son, who was close to death. We see here this man has a need, a deep need that propels him to make some bold decisions. You see, for this royal official to leave his position and his post, there would have to be some discussions. He has people over him and under him. He might even have to talk to, to Herod himself. You see, interestingly, what we, that what we see is that he, he doesn't send somebody. He has many servants. He has soldiers. He has people under him. But he goes himself. Whatever this man's religious beliefs, whatever his position, whatever his culture, we know this about this man He's a dad. He's a dad. A dad who loves his son. And he doesn't want to send anybody else. He doesn't want to send a servant or a soldier. He wants to go there himself. He chances the fact that he might even miss the final moments with his son. His son must be very sick. You know, it says that he's near death for him to make this decision. He hears Jesus is in the area. He makes arrangements in his household with his work, with those above and below him, and he, he travels. And then he gets there. And the Galilean crowds are all around Jesus. They want to see the miracles. He gets there. He probably has to push his way through. He has a purpose. He pushes his way through to get to that piece of, that, that little plot of land that, that is so holy, that place in front of Jesus. Now, John the author of this story, this book, is likely right there. We most often find John flanking Jesus very close. And so John sees this man's fancy clothing. He's dressed like a royal official. He's not dressed like a noble Galilean. He also might, might see that this man has an entourage. Perhaps his soldiers did push a path through for him. But John probably noticed something else about this man. The pleading in his eyes. It's the desperation the need. It says that this royal official, it tells us he begs Jesus. He begs him, pleads with him. It's a two-day journey. Please, please come back with me. My son is about to die. Come with me, please. All these people around, and here he is in front of Jesus. Please, please come with me. So here's what we know about this royal official so far. He has passion. Now, his passion is because his son is in danger. 
But this, this, his heart is on the line, this passion to make this decision. He's heard there's this man working miracles, this, this Hebrew rabbi traveling around. And because of his love for his son, his deep passion that his son would be saved and healed, he makes the journey himself. We also see he has purpose. Like if there's a chance, any chance at all, if there's any hope that Jesus can be the one. You know, Herod can't heal my son. We, they've probably seen all the doctors. His son is close to death. He will find Jesus. He will, he will make his way to Jesus. He will find him, get through the crowd. That's his last hope. He will do whatever it takes to speak to this traveling rabbi. And one thing I, I respect about this man we see here is because of his passionate purpose, he drops his pride. He drops his pride. For a man of his stature, of his influence, of his wealth and position to leave his post in search of a traveling Hebrew rabbi, it says something. And not, because he's, not just because he's important, but partly because he's a man, right? He drops, his, he drops his pride and goes and seeks help. I found a lot of research on the differences between men and women when they're lost on a road trip. Do you know they've done studies about this? There's this old stereotype that men don't like to stop and ask for directions. And please, I don't care who you're sitting next to, do not elbow anyone. Okay? Let this one just go. There is an actual study that found that men will wait over 30 minutes longer than a woman to ask for directions if lost. And they added up all the study and they found this, that Annually, a man will drive an extra 276 miles every year being lost. Now, I'm not saying a man will drive an extra 276 miles in general. A man will drive on average 276 extra miles not knowing where he is or where he's going. Dads, <laughs> men, when it comes to our spiritual lives, when it comes to the places that you might be lost in your character or in your marriage or in your parenting or in some business, it, it's time to drop our pride and to find help. Seek help. But not just for men. For all of us. There are places that we have deep needs. You might be privately lost in something that no one knows about. Not even the person next to you. And, you know, here at the Orchard, we offer free counseling. And for somebody here, this practical step might be the, the, the one thing that you need to get out of today. If there are places you're lost, you can email us at counseling at theorchardlife.com. It's anonymous, it's confidential, and it's free. For each of us, there are areas that we need to go and get help. And for many of us, we need to go and get help from Jesus to drop our pride. In fact, one of the areas that this happens a lot is in the area of baptism. You know, it's one of the things that Jesus asked us to do. And I, I found that the longer someone goes from conversion and then to, to baptism, it's not that they're afraid of water, it's that their pride is in the way. I can't get in there now. It's been 40 years, or I'm 50, or I'm 60, or whatever it would be for you. It's time for some of us to drop our pride and go to Jesus. Now, the next thing Jesus says in response to this man begging him without context seems very Harsh. Jesus says this in verse 48. Unless you people see signs and wonders, Jesus told him, the dad, you will never believe. It says Jesus told him. He's speaking to this man. But he's referencing more than just this official. If you'll notice, he says you people. He's speaking to the crowd. 
He's speaking to these people who are so welcoming, who are so glad he's come back to Galilee, who are like, yay, Jesus is here, because he knows they just want to see a miracle. And Jesus calls it like it is. Oh, you want miracles, and then you'll believe. Then you'll trust me. Once you, once you see the miracle, then you'll trust me. And the author, John, all throughout his book, he has a few themes and a few words that, that he really focuses on. Light, water, those are big things, themes. But one word that he elevates above all the other Gospels is this word believe. It's so huge in the Gospel of John. In fact, remember the very reason that John later in his life sat down and wrote, the, wrote his book was this. John 20, 31. This is written, I've written this, that you may believe in Jesus as the Messiah, the Son of God. Like everything he's writing is so that we can read this and go, I believe in Jesus. John goes on to use the word uh, believe, some form of it, 98 times in his gospel. It's such a big thing. John 3.16, whoever believes in Jesus will not die but have eternal life. And here John records this interaction between this royal official and Jesus and these people, and he talks about believing. Believing is often the backdrop for all these interactions. Jesus says to the crowds, if you don't have a miracle, you won't believe who I am. And for many people, if we were in this religious, this royal official's shoes, you know, if we had just begged, begged Jesus to come help us and he had rebuked us, I guess that's a no. I mean, I guess that's it. Or some people will respond to, no, 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 no. I do believe. I'll do, I'll believe anything. Just come save my son. You know what I'm saying? Anything. But the official here, he's on a singular purpose for a singular hope. And even though Jesus made this heavy statement to him about everybody, he's still a dad. His son, his son is still sick. His boy is near death. And this dad didn't come all this way to leave with that. So it says in verse 49, the royal official said, sir, come down before my child dies. Please. He's undeterred. If we were standing there with John watching this, we would hear the desperation in his voice. Please come. Maybe even pulling on, on Jesus' tunic. We would hear the pleading, come with me. You have no idea my son is my son's going to die. Death was inevitable, it seems, in this case. And here we see the, the dad's passionate plea. We see something else about this dad. That, that he pursued Jesus and he persisted in his prayer, his invitation of Jesus. He pursued Jesus and he persisted in his request. And there are areas of your life where you need to continue to pursue Jesus in those areas of need those areas of, of character, or in your marriage, or in your parenting, or work, or vice, or anxiety, depression, whatever it would be for you, that you would continue to pursue Jesus and be persistent in your requests. So Jesus, having just made this comment about all you want is miracles, and maybe then you'll trust me, then you'll believe me. He's looking the man in the eye. He's just, he's just addressed this man. He's, he's probably looking right into his eyes. I would guess that this, the second plea of this dad, I would guess that John isn't the only one sitting there staring into his eyes at this point. As Jesus, Son of God, God in the flesh, on a mission from heaven, 
is surrounded by people who just want him to perform a miracle. And he's looking at a dad in the eye who's also asking for a miracle. He knows this dad loves his son. He knows this dad's heart. He knows this dad's motives. He knows, what's, he knows why he's here. And we don't know how long the man pleaded. We don't know how, how, how long he asked. And we don't know how long there was a pause before Jesus' next sentence. Because Jesus says this in verse 50, go, your son will live. I believe this is a private moment. I believe this is a private moment. John, being so close to Jesus so often, amidst all the crowd and the, the noise that's probably going along with that, there's, there's this interaction between this desperate father, this desperate parent, pleading, please. And I don't think, I don't think Jesus said, Go, your son shall live. I don't believe that he did that for the crowd to hear. I believe this was a moment that John recorded as Jesus looked in this man's eyes. He said, go, your son will live. A private response. Jesus didn't agree to go with him. Notice that. He didn't say, okay, let's take this two-day journey. Let's go. Jesus knows the man's motives and heart. He didn't question that. He just, he simply commands the man to go. Like, don't stay here. We're good. Go. Your son's going to live. Now, now, many people in the dad's shoes may have wanted more. You know, like, do you want to shake on it? Can somebody get me a certified letter? Like, like can we sign something? Jesus, could you, could you say it, you know, really loud with lots of inflection? Or, like, you know, wave your hand a little bit, like at some churches? Could you give me something more? He just gave me five whispered words. One sentence. I mean, how, let's be honest. How is he to know this is true? There was no flourish. The miracle is 16 miles away if it happens. He's got two days to walk. Maybe one if he's in, if he, probably one if he's a dad in a hurry. And the next sentence in the book of John, don't, do not look ahead like the first service. Do not look ahead and don't put it up. The next sentence is one of my favorites. And I left it, we skipped over this earlier in John because I wanted to place it right here today. Because the next thing that John records is, is something that I want each of you to write down somewhere. It's something I want you to personalize. Make it personal to your day, to your heart. I want you to place it in front of you somewhere. I want you to meditate on it. I want you to, to have this be something that you say, I want that to be true in me. You ready? The dad pleads with Jesus. Jesus tells him to go. Your son will live. The next sentence says, the man took Jesus at his word. The man took Jesus at his word. A group of people who just wanted to be near Jesus to see a miracle. They're taking Jesus at his works. What are you going to do for us? They wouldn't believe unless they saw a miracle. And this dad was told to go, leave, by the miracle worker. That the miracle had been done with zero proof. Nothing had changed right there. But he took Jesus at his word. Orchard and those listening with us, do you know what Jesus says about you? Like, do you know what Jesus says about you? Do you know that his word is, is enough 
to stand on? Do you know his promises that he speaks about your life? Do you know you can take him at his word every day with what you're dealing with? You know that anxiety that you deal with? You can, you can take him at his word when it comes to peace. Or the, de- the depression, that you can take him at his word for joy. Or there in the vice that you're involved in, take him at his word for freedom. Or in the loneliness that his word, you can stand on it for intimacy. Or where there's bitterness and, 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 and strife, you can take him at his word for resolution and, and for peace and for reconciliation. And, and for those places where you're even right now very aware of your sin that you can take him at his word for your forgiveness? Did you know you can take Jesus at his word for everything that you've done or has been done to you in your past? Did you know you can take Jesus at his word for everything that you're going through right now, the stresses, all those things in the present? Did you know you can take Jesus at his word for all the things you're going to face in the future? Take Jesus at his word. You see, we have an enemy and we have a world and circumstances that want to come against us. And we can take Jesus at his word. And he says, go. And we as a church, listen, this fall, we're going to begin to build more and more around this very thing. To be built around God's word in new and different ways. Because just a Sunday morning isn't enough. So we're kicking off some Bible studies, some large-scale Bible studies on some books of the Bible like Revelation, some medium-sized, some small-sized, some for women, for couples, for men, some with child care. Others, they just hand you a baby and whatever happens, you know. All different kinds of Bible studies that you can just engage in, come be a part of, get community, but also begin to take Jesus at his word because the point isn't just to get in God's word, it's to get God's word in us and stand on it and put roots in it. And so when the world and circumstances, the enemy comes and whispers, we take him at his word. Because here's the reality. It's easy to like be in these, be here online or be here in the building and I'm going to take God at his word. But what happens on a Tuesday afternoon when you're in your car and you're stressed and the pressure is crushing and you individually, because of what you're facing at work, You need something. You need to take Jesus at his word. Do you know what his word would say to you? What about on a Thursday? A Thursday night, the kids still aren't asleep and you've had no time to yourself. What do you do then? An evening after a long day when the numbers just aren't adding up in business. Whatever it would be for you, whatever your life stressors, the marriage, the relationships, all the stuff would look like, we need to be a church that can take Jesus at his word outside of this room, that you in your own life, the greatest thing would be that you know his word. You can stand on it. The royal official says, come down with me before my child dies. Jesus replies, go, your son will live. The man took Jesus at his word and departed while he was still on his way. The dad's walking. His servants met him. Oh, now hold on, hold on. Can you imagine this moment? The dad's walking the 16 miles home, probably going pretty fast, and he sees his servants approaching. Oh. No. No. But then he finds out. News that his son is alive. When, they, when the dad inquired as to the time when his son got better, they said it was yesterday at one in the afternoon. The fever broke. It left him. The dad realized this was the exact time that Jesus had said, your son will live. 
What an amazing moment for this guy. What an amazing moment. He leaves Jesus, probably a little excited, but also anxious. He's got that journey ahead of him. Might take two days normally. He's going back. I'm getting there to Capernaum. I'm going to get to my son's bedside and see what's going to happen if he's alive. And on his way, his servants meet him, tell him the good news. The fever broke. The color returned. He sat up. He's eating. He's walking. Or as it says in verse 52, he is better. He's healed. Your boy's healed. They did the math and realized it was right then. The man is just blown away. He realized it was right there when I was in front of Jesus pleading. And he said, go, your son will live. That's 16 miles away in a bedroom. That son, everything changed. It's amazing to me at this point. You know, Jesus has worked two miracles in John so far. Two. One was in a back room of a wedding with nervous waiters and waitresses. Like in the kitchen staff in the back room. This huge wedding. No one knows what's going on. But back there, there's some nervous waiters and waitresses like, oh, we're out of wine. And Jesus goes, okay. And he does this miracle. And the second miracle is Jesus is surrounded by people who want miracles. And he does it in a bedroom 16 miles away, surrounded by nervous family and servants. Now, he's going to get to the big miracles and the 5,000 and all those things, but it's amazing to me that in these private moments, and, and one was for a wedding for dishonor, one's in a, for, for somebody else in their bedroom. Like, do you see that Jesus cares about the private concerns of your own life? In the back room of your business where you're nervous, you can pray and ask Jesus. In the closed places of your private world, you can, you can ask Jesus, please, will you, will you move And for this dad, it's most likely he's not a religious man. He may not even be Jewish. He wasn't a disciple of God. He hadn't been following Jesus around on the dusty road learning from this rabbi. No, he he heard a rumor. He didn't go on to write a book of the Bible. In fact, he's working for the Tetrarch who conquered God's people there in, in, in Jerusalem. This is not the kind of person you would think would be qualified for a miracle from Jesus. Which is great news for us. Because you probably have a lot of reasons you may think you're disqualified from God coming through for you. But God healed this man's son. He, He looked in his eyes and he said, go, it's done. We get this one last tidbit. From John 4, verse 33. So the dad and his whole household believed. The dad and his whole household believed in Jesus. A whole household converts because of what they experienced in this miraculous movement of Jesus. But there's a bit more happening in that sentence than we would know, unless you know the traditions and the context. You see, when I say that the household was saved, we would think, um, well, the mom, the dad, and the kids. You know, four people, a dog, like, you know, what, that's a household, right? But n- not then. A household is, is different back then. A man of this wealth, of this stature, of this position, his household would have been everyone under the authority of his roof. That was what was called his household. This man's household would have included his in-laws who had moved in with him, his extended family, his hired servants, his accountants, his advisors, his his military entourage. Maybe he has some soldiers that he's in charge of. Like, listen, this man's household was quite large if he was a royal official. 
And because of this dad's desperate plea and pursuit of Jesus, and then because of the work of Jesus, his household, the people he has influence, his circles of influence, believed in Jesus. That's another character trait of this official. You see, when God worked in his life, he didn't take any glory for himself. He didn't say like, well, that was kind of a fluke. Maybe he just, maybe just got over it. You know how we try to like, well, maybe they just got better. It wasn't as bad as we thought. He, he acknowledged God's power, and then he proclaimed Jesus. Then he proclaimed Jesus. That's the only way that belief in that household happens. If he said, hey, it wasn't me. I stood there. Jesus said he was healed, and he was. Do you know what this looks like in our modern times? See, this dad takes his experience with Jesus and takes it back to his circle of influence. And so for us, if you know Jesus Christ, if you're a follower of Jesus, then like this dad, you need to take your experience with Jesus to your households. You take your experience with Jesus to the house of your work, to your spheres of influence. You take your experience and what Jesus has done in your life to, to the households of your friendships, in your relationships, your home. Take it on the raft with you, to the bar with you, on a hike with you, when you hang out, wherever it would be, to your desk, to your shop, your meetings. We are asked, we are tasked, we are called by God to go out and take what we have experienced with Jesus to others in our spheres of influence. And to end this, I just want to have a challenge for each of us. And the challenge goes back to that one sentence, that we would take Jesus at his word. But for us to take Jesus at his word, once again, we have to know what is in his word. You see, if we go through our life, the enemy and our circumstances want to diminish your faith diminish you by shame, diminish you by, uh, by busyness, that your life is small, that you're powerless. This world will condemn you and make you feel ashamed of yourself, unworthy, unforgivable, if people only knew. And if you accept that lie, if you allow your life to be diminished spiritually, then you're, you're taking the enemy at his word. You're taking the culture and the world at their word, what they have for you. But I have a question. Do you take God at his word? Because I just want to tell you for a second what that would look like. What would it look like to take God at his word in your life? It would mean this, that you are God's beloved Jeremiah 31.3, that you aren't barely saved, you are declared a son, a daughter of the Most High God, 1 John 3.1. That God isn't angry with you, he actually he delights over you, Zephaniah 3.17. That he has no sin against you, Jesus has set you free of your guilt and you're fully forgiven, 1 Peter 2.4. That you aren't dirty in your sin, no, no, you're whitewashed, you're completely clean, Isaiah 1.18. That you are set free of your chains, that Jesus has broken them, Galatians 5-1, that you aren't some lowly sinner. No, 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 no. Because of Jesus, you 
are a saint. 1 Corinthians 6.11. You actually are a full citizen of heaven. Ephesians, or Philippians 3.20. That you are God's handiwork. Beautiful, created, crafted individually to do great and powerful things. Ephesians 2.10. That you aren't your old self or what defined you. You are a new creation with a new calling. 2 Corinthians 5.17. Listen, you aren't a secondary member of God's plan, the JV team. You are called up to do great works with God. 2 Corinthians 5.18. Listen, you are not defined by your sin. You are defined by his works and declared forgiven. Romans 5.1. Your salvation isn't conditional based on what you do. In fact, it says in God's word, he holds your salvation in his mighty hand. And that is John 10.28. You aren't living in guilt from God because of Jesus. He has set you free from all condemnation, Romans 8.1. So who are you? What do you want to stand on when it comes to God's word? I'll tell you, you're called to make it in, you are called to make a divine impact on this planet. You are called to be a light in the darkness, Matthew 5.13. You're connected to the divine flow of the Holy Spirit who resides in you and flows through you. That's John 15.5. You have been chosen specifically. You have been appointed to do good works in this life, John 15.16. Listen, you're asked to be a personal witness. You've experienced God in your life in different ways, and he's asked you and called you to go out into the world and speak of it, Acts 1.8. You are the very temple of the Holy God. His Spirit lives within you, 1 Corinthians 3.16. You are a warrior of redemption. You are an agent of life. You are a catalyst of life change on this planet, 2 Corinthians 5.17. And listen, you don't go alone. God goes with you. You're a co-worker with Him, 2 Corinthians 6.1. You are powerful. You are effective. He has gifted you. You are equipped. You are a child of God. And it says you can approach His throne, not because of your sin, with shame, but with confidence and freedom because your daddy says, come, Ephesians 3.12. You can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. Philippians 3.13. And in church, Orchard, when we stand together in our giftings with the Holy Spirit and our calling and our anointedness and our purpose, the gates of hell themselves cannot stand against us. Matthew 16, 18. Trust him at his word. We forget, don't we? And at Tuesday at four o'clock, it's gonna be hard to remember all that. So trust him at his word. Know his word. Seek his heart and his word. Get to know his nature. Learn what he says about himself. He is who he says he is. And learn who he says you are and what he's called you to. Orchard, because what God has done in us and through us and for us, we are more powerful beyond measure, walking in freedom and forgiveness as a light in this world to go forth and be a catalyst of redemption and change. Change. Trust Him at His word. As we go into communion, we do so because His communion is what makes all that true of us. Because of what Jesus has done on the cross and rose again, all those things are true. So as you go into communion, personally sit there and say, God, where do I need to trust you at your word? Where am I trusting the lies of the enemy about who I am or what I'm on this purpose for, on this world for? God, show me where to trust you at your word. And then Orchard, after we're done with communion, I want you to stand and I want you to worship 
and proclaim glory to the God who's done all this and called us to this. Worship is the correct response to who he is. So let's go into communion.